Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 114, Smallpox Remastered. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to revisit the topic of cotton mather and smallpox inoculation. We first covered this topic in episode two, when our episodes were much shorter and our sound quality was decidedly subpar. We'll discuss Boston's history with smallpox, including multiple epidemics, the controversy surrounding Mather's inoculation movement, and the final outbreak in the 20th century. But before we talk about Boston's history with smallpox, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club pick and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Boston on Fire, A History of Fires and Firefighting in Boston by Stephanie Shuro. You might remember a couple of weeks ago that everybody's phone alarms were going off to let us know that the 911 system was down. Apparently, a major data center at a company called CenturyLink went down, and it knocked out 911 services across a wide swath of the country. During the midst of the excitement, a fire started in a building on Endicott Street in the North End. Because 911 wasn't working, a quick-thinking bypasser pulled the alarm in one of Boston's bright red fire alarm boxes. At the time, Adam Gaffin of Universal Hub reported, the resident used a box at Cooper and Endicott Streets, known as Box 1212. According to the Boston Fire Historical Society, that location was the site of the first-ever fire alarm signaled by a street box for a fire around 8.25 p.m. on April 29, 1852 just one day after Boston turned on the world's first municipal firebox system. The city's street firebox system still uses the same basic mechanism as employed in the 1852 boxes. A spring-based system inside the box generates Morse code-like signals to the central alarm station that indicate the box's number, and so its location, without the need for fancy electronics or even an external power supply. The fire alarm office has been located in the Fenway since 1925. William Channing, M.D., and Moses Farmer, an electrical engineer, developed the system that now includes some 1,250 street boxes. They obtained a patent for their work in 1857. The story of Channing and Farmer's work on the fire alarm telegraph system makes up the bulk of Chapter 4 in Shuro's 2003 book. She begins with the earlier systems of hallooing a fire, blowing a trumpet, or ringing church bells to signal a fire. Then, she moves on to the development of the telegraph alongside early railroads, to attempts to automate church bells using electromagnetic pulses, to the partnership between Channing and Farmer that led to the patented American Fire Alarm Telegraph. And that's just one chapter in Stephanie Shiro's History of Firefighting in Boston, which ranges from the early 17th century to the late 20th. It covers stories we've discussed on the show, like the 1834 Ursuline Convent Riot and the tragedy at Coconut Grove, as well as stories we haven't gotten to yet, like the Great Fire of 1872 or the 1972 Vendome Collapse. Pick this one up to whet your appetite for future episodes about fires and firefighting in Boston. And for our upcoming event this week, we're bringing you the story of the 1919 Boston Molasses Flood. That's right, a story we find so fascinating that we've released not one, but two previous podcast episodes about it. 
This month marks the centennial of the misunderstood tragedy, which makes this a perfect time to brush up on what happened. This time, however, instead of making you listen to us tell the tale again, we'll point you to a lecture by the author of the foremost reconstruction of what happened. Stephen Paleo is the author of Dark Tide, and he'll be speaking at the Copley branch of the BPL on the centennial of the disaster. Here's a preview from the event listing. Around noon on January 15, 1919, a group of firefighters was playing cards in Boston's North End when they heard a tremendous crash. It was like roaring surf, one of them said. Like a runaway two-horse team smashing through a fence, said another. A third firefighter jumped up from his chair to look out a window. Oh my God, he shouted to the other men. Run! A 50-foot-tall steel tank filled with 2.3 million gallons of molasses had just collapsed on Boston's waterfront, disgorging its contents as a 15-foot-high wave of molasses that at its outset traveled at 35 miles an hour. It demolished wooden homes, even the brick fire station. The number of dead wasn't known for days. It would be years before a landmark court battle determined who was responsible for the disaster. Pileo will speak in the Rab Lecture Hall on the lower level of the new wing of the library. The event begins at 6 p.m. on January 15th. Admission is free, and registration is not required. And now it's time for this week's main topic. As a history nerd, people are often surprised to learn that I would not take advantage of time travel should the opportunity present itself. I like a world with indoor plumbing, abolition, suffrage, and a 0% chance of contracting smallpox. I'm not sure that there is anything today that we fear as much as our ancestors feared smallpox, a disease with a 30% chance of death. The initial symptoms of the disease included fever and vomiting, followed by the formation of sores in the mouth and a skin rash. Over several days, the skin rash turned into characteristic fluid-filled bumps with a dent in the center. The bumps then scabbed over and fell off, leaving scars. The highly contagious disease used to spread between people or by contaminated objects. There are estimates that the disease was killing up to 20% of the population in Europe through the mid-1700s. And of course, once Europeans came to the Americas, smallpox wiped out the native population and was sometimes used as a biological weapon. Early Bostonians were no stranger to the fear of smallpox. In the show notes, we'll link to a 1723 map of Boston by John Bonner, with a key showing a list of great fires and a list of smallpox outbreaks. It lists outbreaks in 1649, 66, 77, 78, 89, 90, 1702, and 1721. Of New England's history with smallpox, Ted Widmer, writing for The Globe, tells us, To early New Englanders, smallpox was one of life's many imponderables. No one really knew where the disease came from. Was it carried by bad air or sent as a form of divine retribution for personal failings? Boston had plenty to fear on both counts. One observer described the town at low tide as a very stinking puddle. Medical knowledge was still primitive. A learned scientist, John Winthrop Jr., kept what he thought was a unicorn horn in his cabinet. For most, the first line of defense was the prayer book. Disease was an inseparable part of the New England story from the beginning. It arrived with the Great Migration of the 1630s, 
aboard the very ships that brought so many families to New England. It returned in 1666 and again in 1678, when an epidemic killed 340 Bostonians. A young Cotton Mather wrote, Boston burying places never filled so fast. With time, local leaders began to develop crude public health policies, burying the dead quickly, flying red flags over houses affected, and requiring ships with six sailors to stop at Spectacle Island in Boston Harbor. But as Bostonians knew, the next epidemic was always just over the horizon. In 1721, on April 22nd, the HMS Seahorse arrived from the West Indies with smallpox on board, and despite precautions, a full-blown epidemic started. The sailor was quarantined to try to prevent the disease from spreading, but some of the other crew were already infected. As they moved through the city, smallpox began to spread rapidly through the population. And as a side note, that's almost exactly how Boston came down with the Spanish flu in 1918. Check out episode 95 for that story. For Bostonians, the only preventative measure available was prayer. Yet in other parts of the world, a defense known as variolation had been in use for centuries. The CDC describes the practice. One of the first methods for controlling the spread of smallpox was the use of variolation. Named after the virus that causes smallpox, variola virus, variolation is the process by which material from smallpox pustules was given to people who had never had smallpox. This was done either by scratching the material into the arm or inhaling it through the nose. With both types of variolation, people usually went on to develop the symptoms associated with smallpox, such as fever and a rash. However, fewer people died from variolation than if they had acquired smallpox naturally. That's pretty gross. Blech. The Chinese practiced the oldest documented use of variolation, dating back to the 15th century. They implemented a method of nasal insufflation, administered by blowing powdered smallpox material, usually scabs, up the nostrils. Various insufflation techniques were recorded throughout the 16th and 17th centuries in China. Mild smallpox cases were selected as donors in order to prevent serious attack. The technique used scabs that had been left out to dry for some time, as fresh scabs were more likely to lead to a full-blown infection. Three or four scabs were ground into powder or mixed with a grain of musk and bound in cotton. Infected material was then packed into a pipe and puffed up the patient's nostril. The right nostril was used for boys and the left for girls. Two reports on the Chinese practice were received by the Royal Society in London in 1700. One by Dr. Martin Lister, who received a report by an employee of the East India Company stationed in China, and another by Clopton Havers. But no action was taken. Two similar methods were described in Sudan during the late 18th and early 19th centuries. In one practice, a mother of an unprotected child would visit the home of a newly infected child and tie a cotton cloth around the ailing child's arm. She would then haggle with the child's mother over the cost of each pustule. When a bargain was struck, the woman would return home and tie the cloth around her own child's arm. In the second method, similar to that used in Turkey, fluid was collected from a smallpox pustule and rubbed into a cut made into the patient's skin. This practice spread more widely through Africa before making its way to Boston with the unlikely endorsement of Cotton Mather. Mather was born in Boston, the son of Maria Cotton and Increase Mather, 
and grandson of both John Cotton and Richard Mather, all prominent Puritan ministers. Mather was named after his maternal grandfather, John Cotton. He attended Boston Latin School and graduated from Harvard in 1678 at age 15. After completing his postgraduate work, he joined his father as assistant pastor of Boston's original North Church, where he assumed full responsibilities as pastor of the church in 1685. Cotton Mather is most remembered for his role in the Salem Witch Trials. In 1689, Mather published Memorable Providences, detailing the supposed afflictions of several children in the Goodwood family in Boston. Catholic washerwoman Goody Glover was convicted of witchcraft and executed in this case. Mather had a prominent role. Besides praying for the children, which also included fasting and meditation, he observed and recorded their activities. The children were subject to hysterical fits, which he detailed in memorable providences. In the book, Mather argued that since there are witches and devils, there are immortal souls. He also claimed that witches would appear spectrally as themselves. Basically, he wrote witchcraft for dummies. 19th century historian Charles Wentworth Upham asserted that the afflicted in Salem were imitating the Goodwin children. But he put the blame on both Cotton and his father Increase Mather. They are answerable, more than almost any other men have been, for the opinions of their time. It was indeed a superstitious age, but made much more so by their operations, influence, and writings, beginning with Increase Mather's movement at the Assembly of Ministers in 1681 and ending with Cotton Mather's dealings with the Goodwin children, and the account thereof which he printed and circulated far and wide. For this reason, then in the first place, I hold those two men responsible for what is called Salem witchcraft. Mather wrote more than 450 books and pamphlets, and his ubiquitous literary works made him one of the most influential religious leaders in the colonies. He set the moral tone and sounded the call for second- and third-generation Puritans to return to the theological roots of Puritanism. The most important of these was the Magnalia Christi Americana in 1702, which comprises seven distinct books, many of which depict biographical and historical narratives. Mather also influenced early American science. In 1716, he conducted one of the first recorded experiments with plant hybridization because of observations of corn varieties. This observation was memorialized in a letter to his friend James Pettiver. First, my friend planted a row of Indian corn that was colored red and blue, the rest of the field being planted with corn of the yellow, which is the most usual color. To the windward side, this red and blue row so infected three or four whole rows as to communicate the same color unto them, and part of the fifth and some of the sixth. But to the leeward side, no less than seven or eight rows had the same color communicated unto them, and some small impressions were made on those that were yet further off. Cotton Mather also emerged as the face of the vaccination movement. Widner explains how he learned the methodology from Onesimus, an enslaved person in his household. Mather had come close to choosing a career in medicine, and devoured the scientific publications of the Royal Society in London. As the Society began to turn its attention to inoculation practices around the world, Mather realized that he had an extraordinary expert living in his household. Onesimus was a pretty intelligent fellow, it had become clear to him. When asked if he'd ever had smallpox, Onesimus answered, 
yes and no, explaining that he had been inoculated with a small amount of smallpox, which had left him immune to the disease. Fascinated, Mather asked for details, which Onesimus provided, and showed him his scar. We can almost hear Onesimus speaking in Mather's accounts, for Mather took the unusual step of writing out his words, with the African accent included. The key phrase was, People take juice of smallpox and cutty skin and put in a drop. Returning to the arrival of the MHS Seahorse in April of 1721, an account of actions taken is given by James Blake in a New England Quarterly article. On April 22, 1721, among several ships arriving from the West Indies was HMS Seahorse, which brought the smallpox. Not until May 8th, however, did the selectmen learn that a black sailor who came on the naval vessel was in town with the disease. When they heard of another case at Captain Wentworth Paxton's house, they ordered two men to stand guard there and let no one in or out without their permission. A few days later, at the request of the town, the governor and council ordered the seahorse down to Bird Island to prevent further infection from this source, but not until after several other sick members of the company had come ashore. As late as May 20th, the selectmen could find no more cases, but two days later, the town nevertheless instructed its representatives to seek further legislation to enable the selectmen to prevent the spread of infectious sickness. On the 24th, the selectmen set 26 free black men to work cleaning the streets as a preventative measure, but without avail. On May 27th, there were eight known cases, and by the middle of June, the disease was in so many houses that the selectmen abandoned the system of guards. As this new wave of smallpox hit the area and continued to spread, many residents fled to outlying rural settlements. The combination of exodus, quarantine, and fear of outsiders disrupted business for weeks. Guards were stationed at the House of Representatives to keep Bostonians from entering without special permission. The death toll reached 101 in September, and legislators delegated a thousand pounds from the Treasury to help the people who, under these conditions, could no longer support their families. But back on June 6, 1721, Mather sent an abstract of reports on inoculation by Timonius and Jacobus Pilarinus to local physicians, urging them to consult about the matter. He received no response. Next, Mather pleaded his case to Dr. Zabdiel Boylston who tried the procedure on his youngest son and two enslaved people, one grown and one a boy. All recovered in about a week. And yet, the people were willing to completely ignore the objective evidence before them for the sake of religion and superstition. Apparently, climate change is the new smallpox. The newly formed New England Courant published writers who opposed the practice. The editorial stance was that the Boston populace feared that inoculation spread rather than prevented the disease. Editor-in-Chief James Franklin, a brother of Benjamin Franklin, led the attacks on Mather and Boylston. Several opponents of smallpox inoculation stated that there were only two laws of medicine, sympathy and antipathy. The opposition stated that inoculation was neither a sympathy toward a wound or disease, nor an antipathy toward one, but the creation of one. For this reason, its practice violated the natural laws of medicine, transforming healthcare practitioners into those who harm rather than heal. 
Puritan beliefs were enmeshed in every aspect of life, and anti-inoculation doctors used the Bible to make a case. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Dr. William Douglas proposed a more secular argument against inoculation, stressing the importance of reason over passion and urging the public to be pragmatic in their choices. In addition, he demanded that ministers leave the practice of medicine to physicians and not meddle in areas where they lacked expertise. Now, to be clear, that is some serious shade to Cotton Mather. According to Douglas, smallpox inoculation was a medical experiment of consequence, one not to be undertaken lightly. He believed that not all learned individuals were qualified to doctor others. And while ministers took on several roles in the early years of the colony, including that of caring for the sick, they were now expected to stay out of state and civil affairs. Douglas felt that inoculation caused more deaths than it prevented. The only reason Mather had had success in it, he said, was because Mather had used it on children who are naturally more resilient. Douglas and Mather took shots at each other in their writings pretty much for the rest of their lives. But Cotton Mather was not the only minister in favor of inoculation. Generally, Puritan pastors favored the inoculation experiments. Increase Mather, Cotton's father, was joined by prominent pastors Benjamin Coleman and William Cooper in openly propagating the use of inoculation. Nevertheless, opponents believe that smallpox was a peculiar act of God, not understood by man and not meant to be fought against. If smallpox was a punishment for sin, then inoculation was to reject God's will and provoke something even worse. Opponents also grappled with adhering to the Ten Commandments, and the apparent contradiction between harming or murdering a neighbor through inoculation and the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill, stood as one of the main objections against the procedure. The subject of inoculation could not be found in the Bible, and with the Bible as the Puritan's source for all decision-making, lack of scriptural evidence concerned many. Mather was scorned for not being able to reference an inoculation edict directly from the source. With the smallpox epidemic catching speed and racking up a staggering death toll, a solution to the crisis was becoming more urgently needed by the day. The use of quarantine and various other effects, such as balancing the body's humors, did not slow the spread of the disease. As news rolled in from town to town and correspondence arrived overseas, reports of horrific stories of suffering and loss due to smallpox stirred mass panic among the people. Mather strongly challenged the perception that inoculation was against the will of God, and argued that the procedure was not outside of Puritan principles. He wrote that, Whether a Christian may not employ this medicine, let the matter of it be what it will, and humbly give thanks to God's good providence in discovering of it to a miserable world, and humbly look up to his good providence as we do in the use of any other medicine. It may seem strange that any wise Christian cannot answer it. And how strangely do men that call themselves physicians betray their anatomy and their philosophy as well as their divinity and their invectives against this practice? The Puritan minister began to embrace the sentiment that smallpox was an inevitability for anyone, both the good and the wicked, yet God had provided them with the means to save themselves. Just like today, in 1721, domestic terrorism was used to fight progress. 
In November, a small bomb was hurled through Cotton Mather's window at his home in North Square. Attached to this explosive was a note that read, Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you! I'll inoculate you with this, with a pox to you! The bomber was better at insults than he or she was at explosives. The device did not detonate. While Mather was experimenting with the procedure, pastors Coleman and Cooper expressed public and theological support for it. The practice of smallpox inoculation was eventually accepted by the general population due to first-hand experiences and personal relationships. Although many were initially wary of the concept, it was because people were able to witness the procedure's consistently positive results within their own community of ordinary citizens that it became widely utilized and supported. The epidemic peaked in October of 1721 with 411 deaths. In total, 5,889 cases were identified with 844 deaths, more than three-quarters of all the deaths in Boston during 1721. In a 2014 article, Matthew Naderhuber provides a modern take on the inoculation debate and reviews the data. By modern standards, this argument against inoculation seems highly sensible. The use of a poorly researched medical technique, particularly one as potentially hazardous as intentionally exposing healthy people, including children, to smallpox, would be highly unethical today. To many professional Boston physicians, inoculation must have appeared as unscientific as other contemporary treatments, such as bleeding and purging, which were still common practice during the early 18th century. But as the epidemic began to diminish in early 1722, Mather and Boylston had collected surprisingly thorough data that made a clear argument for the effectiveness of inoculation. Boylston, who had personally inoculated some 287 people, recorded that of those inoculated, only 2% had died. In comparison, the mortality rate of the naturally occurring disease during that year was 14.8%. By February of 1722, Boston was again free from the smallpox. In his Globe article, Widner shares a surprising anecdote about the impact of this ordeal on young Benjamin Franklin. An important witness to the debate over inoculation was a 15-year-old boy, the younger brother of Cotton Mather's chief tormentor in the Courant. Perhaps the most famous Bostonian of all time, Benjamin Franklin made his fortune, of course, by fleeing the city and its theological disputes for Philadelphia. As an adult, possibly with some acknowledgement that he and James had been too quick to ridicule an elderly minister trying to use science on behalf of humanity, Franklin would become an important advocate of inoculation especially after his own son died of smallpox. Franklin also had a personal encounter with Zabdiel Boylston in London not long after the smallpox crisis that changed his life. The young Franklin had run out of money and options, and Boylston helped him with a crucial loan of 20 guineas, despite the fact that Franklin and his brother had attacked his medical efforts throughout 1721. As an old man in Paris, Franklin met a young relative of Boylston's and told him that he could never repay what that loan had meant to him at a low moment. I owe everything I am to him, he confided, before asking the young man what he could do for him. Obviously, science has continued to advance because we don't get inoculated with live viruses today. We get vaccines. A vaccine typically contains an agent that resembles a disease-causing microorganism 
and is often made from weakened or killed forms of the microbe, its toxins, or one of its surface proteins. The first vaccine was used to prevent, you guessed it, smallpox. Sometime during the late 1760s, while serving his apprenticeship as a surgeon and apothecary, an Englishman named Edward Jenner learned of the rumor that dairy workers never contracted smallpox. Instead, they would contract cowpox, which has a very mild effect in humans. In 1796, Jenner took pus from the hand of a milkmaid with cowpox, scratched it into the arm of an eight-year-old boy, James Phipps, and six weeks later inoculated the boy with smallpox. Afterwards, observing that he did not catch it, Jenner extended his studies and in 1798 reported that his procedure was safe in children and adults and could be transferred from arm to arm, reducing reliance on uncertain supplies from infected cows. Vaca is the Latin word for cow, and thus vaccinations were born. And P.S. The milkmaid who rendered the initial pus got cowpox from a cow named Blossom. Blossom's Hide is now mounted on the wall of the library of St. George's Medical School in England. In 1900, starting in New York City, smallpox reared its head once again and started a socio-political battle with lines drawn across race and class. In populations of railroad and migrant workers who traveled from city to city, the disease had reached an endemic low boil. This fact did not bother the government at the time, nor did it spur them to action. Despite the general acceptance of the germ theory of disease, pioneered by John Snow in 1849, smallpox was still thought to be mostly a malady that followed the less distinct guidelines of a filth disease, and therefore would only affect the lower classes. The last major smallpox epidemic in the United States occurred, of course, here in Boston, from 1901 to 1903. During this three-year period, 1,596 cases of the disease occurred throughout the city. Of those cases, nearly 300 people died. As a whole, the epidemic had a 17% fatality rate. Those who were infected with the disease were detained in quarantine facilities in the hopes of protecting others from getting sick. These quarantine facilities, or pest houses, were mostly located on Southampton Street. As the outbreak worsened, Men were also moved to hospitals on Gallup's Island, while women and children were primarily sent to Southampton Street. Smallpox patients were not allowed in regular hospitals across the city, for fear that the sickness would spread among the already sick. In a reflection of the previous outbreak that occurred in New York, the poor and homeless were blamed for spreading the disease. In response to this belief, the city instructed teams of physicians to vaccinate anyone living in inexpensive housing. In an effort to control the outbreak, the Boston Board of Health began voluntary vaccination programs. Individuals could receive free vaccines at their workplaces or at different stations set up throughout the city. By the end of 1901, some 40,000 of the city's residents had received a smallpox vaccine, yet the disease continued to spread. A New England Journal of Medicine article tells us, Continued reports of smallpox cases led the Boston Board of Health to order that all inhabitants of the city who have not been successfully vaccinated since January 1, 1897, be vaccinated or revaccinated forthwith. A program of house-to-house -house vaccination was initiated in January, with physicians sent to the most affected areas of the city, 
East Boston, South Boston, Charlestown, the North End, the West End, and parts of Roxbury and Dorchester. The instructions given to the physicians were as follows. Vaccinate all who are willing and not too ill. No force to be used. Make skin clean before vaccinating. Make two scarifications. Make no scarification more than one-fourth inch in diameter. Do not make the blood flow. Rub the lymph well into the wound and secure its drying. Caution the patient carefully against breaking the vesicle or doing other injury. Persons who refuse vaccination were subject to a $5 fine or a 15-day jail sentence. The article continues. The homeless were blamed for spreading smallpox. A 1904 editorial in The Lancet stated, What a potent factor in maintaining the prevalence of smallpox is that unemployed and largely unemployable degenerate. The fact that this parasite upon the charity and good nature of the community is in his turn a vehicle for the spread of other parasites, both animal and vegetable, is common knowledge but practically no compulsory steps have been taken to curtail seriously the vagrants' movements. In November of 1901, the Boston Board of Health ordered virus squads to vaccinate men living in inexpensive rooming houses. A reporter for the Boston Globe accompanied a squad one night and described the scene. Every imaginable threat from civil suits to cold-blooded murder when they got an opportunity to commit it was made by the writhing, cursing, struggling tramps who were operated upon, and a lot of them had to be held down in their cots, one big policeman sitting on their legs and another on their heads, while the third held the arms bared for the doctors. One fighting tramp who went down in a heap on the floor from the blow of a policeman's club received both vaccination and suturing of his scalp. In hearings on compulsory vaccination, Opponents alleged that in Massachusetts, boards of health in many cases had acted with autocratic power and forcibly assaulted persons to vaccinate them. The door-to-door program met with resistance, as some individuals feared the vaccines to be unsafe and ineffective. Others felt compulsory vaccination in itself was a problem that violated an individual's civil liberties. This program of compulsory vaccination eventually led to the case Jacobson v. Massachusetts. This case was the result of a Cambridge resident's refusal to be vaccinated. Henning Jacobson, a Swedish immigrant, refused vaccination out of fear it would cause him illness. He claimed a previous smallpox vaccine had made him sick as a child. Rather than pay the $5 fine, he challenged the state's authority on forcing people to receive vaccination. His case was lost at the state level, but Jacobson appealed the ruling and the case was taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1905, the Supreme Court upheld the Massachusetts law. It was ruled that Jacobson could not refuse the mandatory vaccination. Justice John Marshall Harlan delivered the majority decision. He rejected Jacobson's claim that the 14th Amendment gave him the right to refuse vaccination. Harlan deemed the Massachusetts state punishment of a fine or imprisonment on those who refused vaccines acceptable, but those individuals could not be forcibly vaccinated. At the end of his decision, he acknowledged that for certain individuals, the requirement of vaccination would be cruel and inhumane, and therefore an overreach of government power. That created a medical exemption for adults under the Massachusetts health law, but Harlan denied that Jacobson deserved exemption. The anti-vaccine movement mobilized following the decision. 
The Anti-Vaccination League of America was founded three years later in Philadelphia to promote the principle that health is nature's greatest safeguard against disease and that therefore no state has the right to demand of anyone the impairment of his or her health. The League warned about what it believed to be the dangers of vaccination and the dangers of allowing the intrusion of government and science into private life. The League asked, We have repudiated religious tyranny. We have rejected political tyranny. Shall we now submit to medical tyranny? Fortunately, the Supreme Court reaffirmed its Jacobson decision in Zucht v. King in 1922, which held that a school system could refuse admission to a student who failed to receive a required vaccination. We've said it before, and to be honest, we'll probably say it again. Vaccinate your kids, people. And we also want to say that while Cotton Mather comes off as a hero in this story, he was a pretty insufferable person in real life whose intolerances led to the persecution and death of many. Probably don't want to get yourself a Team Mather t-shirt. Although I do have a Team Mather sticker on my laptop. For shame. To learn more about smallpox in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 114. We'll have links to all the articles mentioned in this episode, the text of a 1932 speech given to the Massachusetts Medical Society on the history of smallpox in Massachusetts, including its early arrival to native populations, and a fresh air episode on how the pox epidemic changed vaccination rules. In addition, we'll link to John Adams' account of his own inoculation by Dr. Joseph Warren. Lastly, we'll include a link to Boston Magazine's list of the 100 greatest Bostonians of all time which lists Onismus several spots above Cotton Mather. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Boston on Fire, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. And if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about the early bridges and ferries over the Charles River. <laughs> <laughs>